This episode of Infinite Potential is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the skills you're looking for, like collaboration, creativity, adaptability, so you can hire the right person fast. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. Use LinkedIn Jobs today and make mindfulness part of your hiring process. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash infinite. linkedin.com slash infinite. Terms and conditions apply. This is the third and final part of our special mini-series on MetaHuman. And we end it with a live recording of my conversation with Dr. Don Hoffman, writer and professor of cognitive sciences at the University of California, Irvine. I came to discuss my latest book, MetaHuman. He came to discuss his, The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. Intrigued? Our conversation took place recently at the Rubin Museum in New York City. Think of looking at yourself, your face, in the mirror. What do you see? All you see directly is skin, hair, and eyes. But you know firsthand that what you don't see in the mirror, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your love of music, your headache, all the colors, sounds, and shapes that you're experiencing, none of that can be seen on your face. The face is covering up this infinite world of your conscious experiences. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential, where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. Welcome to the Rubin Museum of Art. I'm Tim McHenry. I'm Director of Programs and Engagement here, and we're delighted and honored to welcome Professor Donald Hoffman here from the University of California, Irvine, where he's a Professor of Cognitive Science. Don Hoffman is not only a highly respected Professor of Science, but also of logic and mathematics. So this is going to be quite a night. And if you doubt that, he's also the holder of the Rustam Roy Award from the Chopra Foundation. Tonight, he brings the case against reality, laying out reasons why evolution hid the truth from our eyes and how we are truly blind to our own blindnesses. Please welcome Professor Donald Hoffman and Dr. Deepak Chopra. Einstein is famously quoted as saying the moon would still be there if no one was looking at it. You're saying my son was wrong. That's right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he has 100 IQ points over me. You know, it's, it's really a shock to the system to think that we've really so misunderstood our perceptions. And there's a history of this shock in humanity. You, you know, 500 BC, everybody thought the Earth was flat. And humanity thought the Earth was flat because it looks that way. And then it took you know, some really brilliant Greeks like Pythagoras to do the math and figure it out and go, whoa, this thing is really more like a sphere, even though it doesn't look like it. 
And you can imagine a lot of people saying, you're an idiot. I mean, this is, this is flat. And there are some people today that still say that, actually. So, <laughs> so it finally caught on that the Earth is a sphere. But then everybody assumed that, well, the sphere isn't moving. The Earth isn't moving. This, it's the center of the universe. Um, the sun, moon, and stars clearly go around us again because it looks that way. And so from 500 BC until Copernicus, about 2,000 years, we believed the Earth was, was the center of the universe, again, because it looks that way. And it was a huge shock when we realized that we'd misinterpreted our perceptions. I mean, it was not well received. Galileo was threatened with torture, and he was imprisoned. Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake. Now they just don't give you tenure. Yeah, that's him. That's him. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Fortunately, you no, have no, your tenure, yeah, right? Yeah. No, well, yeah. Actually, I, I told one of my graduate students not to work on this until he got tenure. So. so let me ask you the very important question, because your book is called The Case Against Reality. The very question, what is the biological basis of consciousness, may be the wrong question that, in fact, biology is an experience in consciousness. And what we are experiencing right now, none of this is actually real. This is a very small, narrow bandwidth of perceptual activity in human consciousness, very separate from other species, that is being interpreted as these body minds, this piece of furniture, the trees, the rocks, that none of that is actually, it exists, including you and me. This is a virtual reality in a collective dreamscape. And we are all fictional characters projecting this virtual reality in that dreamscape. Don't sugarcoat it. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. When you first hear it, it sounds pretty crazy. Right. So that was the point of view that I took on this, was to say, maybe we're making a false assumption. Maybe I and my colleagues have all assumed that neurons exist and have causal powers, even when they're not observed. So there's the notion of what, what is real. You're saying even the neurons actually are part of the hallucination. Right. 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 That, that's right. I'm Including a, the brain. Yeah, that's where I'm going to go. You also say that evolution hides the truth from us. Right. Why? Now, you are using evolutionary theory to actually debunk classical Darwinian evolution. Yeah, I decided that we were failing not because we were on the right track, we just hadn't gotten there, but that we'd made a false assumption, that there was something deeply false that we were assuming in the science that we deeply believe, but was deeply false. So I decided that because I studied visual perception, I'd already gotten some hints from my work in visual perception that we're constructing what we see. And I began to wonder, maybe what we're constructing isn't a reconstruction of reality. Maybe we're just constructing, not reconstructing, right? And actually, if you think about it, saying that we construct what we see is not only what we see out there, but our own body. Yeah, everything, everything that you perceive in any of your senses would be a construction. construction. And by the way, what, what I'm saying there is the, the idea that we construct what we perceive in any of our senses, I would say that 95% of my colleagues um, would agree with that. It's a small minority that would disagree. So the idea is that we construct 
what we see. But I would say that all, almost all of my colleagues, except me, say that what we construct is actually a reconstruction of the truth, that evolution had shaped us to see reality as it is. And the argument is that those of our ancestors who saw more truly had a competitive advantage in the important activities of life, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating, had a competitive advantage in those activities, and therefore more, were more likely to pass on their genes that coded for their more accurate perceptions. So after thousands of generations of this process, we can be quite confident that we are the offspring of those who saw more accurately and we see quite accurately. And I began to question that. And it turns out that evolution by natural selection is now a mathematically precise theory. John Maynard Smith in the 70s launched evolutionary game theory. It's taken off. It's, it's a quite well-developed branch of mathematics. So we don't have to wave our hands. We don't have to guess or you know, argue about what evolution will do. We can actually run simulations and then prove theorems. And that's what I did with some graduate students. Beginning about 12 years ago, I decided to go into it. My graduate students and I ran simulations, about a million random worlds where we had creatures that could go around in the worlds foraging for resources, and we let some of the creatures see all of the truth, and we let other creatures see none of the truth, and they were just allowed to track what are called the fitness points, the fitness payoffs. And we can talk about what that means. Your theorem, your mathematical theorem. That's right. So, well, that was the simulation. What we found in the simulations was organisms that we let see the truth went extinct when they competed against organisms of equal complexity that saw none of the truth and were just tuned to the fitness payoffs. So that gave me confidence to say, there's probably a theorem here. And so I, I proposed a theorem, and I went to a, a very talented mathematician named Chaitan Prakash and worked with him on that, and, and Chaitan proved this theorem. And it is that an organism that sees reality as it is is never more fit than an organism of equal complexity that sees none of reality and is just tuned to the fitness payoffs. So what that means is that evolution has tuned our perceptions to report fitness payoffs. And all of my colleagues would agree with that. But what the theorem says is, and because it's tuned our perceptions to report fitness payoffs, it is not reporting the truth. Those are two separate things. So that's the stunner. And because I have a theorem, my colleagues have not been able to take this down. So I'm, I'm giving talks at neuroscience uh, meetings and so forth. What, what, what this means is the very language of space and time and objects and colors and shapes and motions and so forth is the wrong language to describe objective reality. So let me stop you right there. You're saying even space-time, this whole theater of space-time and causality with objects, some of them inanimate and some of them moving around like you and me, that this is all part of the dreamscape, right? That space-time are also not fundamental. That's right. I like your user interface theory. Can you explain that? Because that touches on this. Absolutely. What the theorem is saying is that space-time itself as we perceive it, it feels so real, right? It feels like the pre-existing stage on which the drama of life has played out. And surely the Big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago. Based on present perceptual interpretations, right. oh, that's, that, that's, which aren't accurate. That's right, but that's the standard story. And I'm saying that the standard story 
is wrong, that we're not little bit players that have come on the stage of time and space late in the game. We're the authors of space and time. We, we create them. They're data structures that we use to represent fitness payoffs and how to get them. And so are objects. So this is not a real book, although I hope you do buy it. But, <laughs> but, but it's a data structure that you create. And you create it when you look. And then you garbage collect it. You throw it away. You, you get rid of that data structure when you look away. So I'm saying that we create. I create the table. When I look at it, I create the tomato, my favorite example. When I look at it, and then that data structure I destroy. Think about a virtual reality helmet. Then I'll do the interface too. VR helmet is really useful. In virtual reality, you're actually immersed in a 3D virtual world. You actually feel a 3D world out there. Suppose you're playing tennis, virtual tennis, and you have a, you know, a green tennis ball that you hit to your partner. Well, when you look at the tennis ball, you, know, you move your headset like that and you see the tennis ball. Now you know if you look away, there is no green tennis ball because the only green tennis ball was the one that you created when you looked over there. There is no tennis ball in the computer. And so, and you could say, well, but if I put the tennis ball down there, look away and look back, I'll see the green tennis ball. And that means it's really there. Of course, you'll see the green tennis ball, but that doesn't mean that the tennis ball exists when you're not looking. It just means that you reconstructed the tennis ball when you looked. And so that's what I'm saying is going on here. Think about, you have a helmet on, a headset on. We've never had the headset off. That's what evolution gave us, was a headset. Here I'm rendering a glass. It's just a data structure for fitness payoffs. Now I've garbage collected it. It no longer exists. You see a glass, but that's because you're rendering your own data structure. And this data structure is only there to show you fitness payoffs and how to get them, not telling you the truth about anything. So space and time themselves are simply data structures that we create. Is this theater of space-time, you say, is like a computer desktop. That's right. So that's another good metaphor. So there's the VR metaphor. And by the way, these are just metaphors to, to help intuitions because it sounds crazy. This doesn't exist when I don't look. How, how can that be? But suppose you're, you're writing an email and the icon for the email is blue and rectangular and in the middle of your desktop. Does that mean that the email itself in your computer is blue and rectangular and in the middle of your computer? Of course not. Anybody who thought that misunderstands the real purpose of the desktop interface. It's not there to show you the reality, which in this metaphor would be the circuits, the software, the voltages. It's there explicitly to hide the reality, all that complexity. You don't need, and in fact, if you tried to craft an email by toggling bolts, good luck. I mean, you know, it just wouldn't work. So we would never do it. And, and that's what evolution has done for us. It has given us a three-dimensional desktop. Space is your 3D desktop. Physical objects like this glass are 3D icons. And the point is to hide the truth. Because if you had to deal with the truth, you couldn't do what you needed to do to stay alive. It's just like the point of the desktop interface is to hide the circuits and software. There are a few geeks who can actually get in there and do it. Most of us couldn't and we wouldn't use it. So the reason why we as a species survive, according to the theory, this theory of evolution, is because evolution carefully hid the truth and gave us simple eye candy, three-dimensional space, three-dimensional objects, simple eye candy that lets us control the truth while we're utterly ignorant about the nature of the truth. And the tie-in with the hard problem of consciousness is this. That means that no object 
in space and time exists when it's not perceived. So I make a clean prediction. And if I'm wrong in this prediction, my whole theory is wrong. No object, like an electron, has a precise value of position, momentum, and spin when it's not perceived. Let's take a break from our fascinating conversation with Dr. Hoffman and discuss a reality that we can absolutely be sure about. Hiring is difficult. It's not easy to find people who fit your role perfectly, who complement your business and your goals. But LinkedIn gives you insights and perceptions that no other hiring platform can offer. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the skills you're looking for, so you can hire the right person fast. LinkedIn puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. Use LinkedIn Jobs today and make mindfulness part of your hiring process. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash infinite. Again, that's linkedin.com slash infinite to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I think it's clear that our senses deceive us, right? You're also use synesthesia as an example, and also split-brain experiments to yes. further elaborate your points. Right. Can you talk a little bit about synesthesia and, sure. and split-brain experiments? About 4% of the human population has synesthesia. And I'll give you a concrete example of one kind. There are many, many kinds. There was a man named Michael Watson. Everything that he tasted with his tongue, he also felt with his hands as an object in three-dimensional space. It had a weight. It had a three-dimensional shape that he could feel. He could actually reach his hands around it and feel it. It had a, a texture and a temperature. And in fact, mint felt like this. It felt to him like a tall, cold, smooth column of glass. So this is what he would do for mint. He would actually feel mint that way. Angostura bitters was a basket of ivy. He could feel the sponginess of the leaves. He could put his hands around them, go up and down the tendrils. He would feel that. And caro syrup felt like a basket of BBs. He could feel all those little BBs. And because he had this different way of perceiving taste, he was an exceptional cook. He actually was able to be much more subtle in making the sauces. Than, than most of us could be. So now what's interesting to me about this, and the reason why I think it's really relevant here, is I'm saying that something very, very implausible, that, that your perception of a 3D object like that is just a data structure that you use to represent fitness payoffs. And most of us would go, absolutely not. The reason I'm seeing this is because there really is a picture there, and I'm just seeing the truth. Michael Watson is a clear example. He created exactly this kind of data structure for the taste of mint. Mint in no way resembles this. This is just a useful data structure, a convention that he used to represent tastes. And I'm saying that what Michael Watson did for taste, he used three-dimensional objects to represent tastes. 
I'm saying we use three-dimensional objects equally just for conventional purposes to represent fitness payoffs and how to get them. We're not recovering the true three-dimensional shape of pre-existing objects. That is probably the hardest thing I'm going to say tonight. I mean, that's really hard to wrap our minds around, and that's why I bring up a, a real concrete case of a guy with synesthesia who's actually illustrating that we can actually see and or, well, perceive with his hands three-dimensional objects when there's no 3D object. It's just a data structure. Let me stop you right there, because recently I was in Dubai, and I met a young man, and he had two antennae in his head. And he was the first... Uh, was he born that way? No. <laughs> so this, this kid was born colorblind. And uh, what he decided is that he would decode colors into sound. And so he developed a technology where he can hear colors. So he actually took a picture of me that was a symphony. He just went with his antenna wow. all over me. So and then he said, why should I stop there? Why don't I extend to ultraviolet and x-rays and cosmic rays? And so he got to Dubai because uh, after a lot of difficulty because um, the Br British government said, we can't give a passport to a cyborg and <laughs> only to humans. So he took them to court and he won. So uh, this kid can now experience infrared, ultraviolet, microwaves, radio waves, all as part of his reality. So this is where I'm going with you. If reality can be so deceptive, and elaborate a little bit on the split brain as well, because that further exemplifies what you're saying. With the split brain patients, it's, it's quite interesting that it, it really illustrates the relationship between conscious experiences and, and neural activity. And it also illustrates what I think about consciousness later on. So there were, a few decades ago, many people who had severe epilepsy that could not be treated with the drugs that were then available. And in desperation, as a last resort, um, they went to a radical surgery. And a uh, fellow named Joe Bogan, who I was a friend with, did some of these surgeries. They would shave the head, take a skill saw, remove the skull top, don't try this at home, and then they would take a knife and cut the brain in half. The, the two halves of the brain are connected by a band of fibers called the corpus callosum. It's about 200 to 225 million axons that tie the two hemispheres together. But the idea was if the problem was, say, in the right hemisphere, there was a bad piece of cortex in the right hemisphere that was causing the problems, Maybe by cutting the corpus callosum, the neural activity that was so, because essentially epilepsy is a, a neural storm. It's an electrical storm in the brain. So they thought maybe they could confine the storm to one hemisphere. The other hemisphere would not go under, and that way the person could stay alert and keep themselves from harm. And it was a success. Uh, Joe Bogan really helped several people. The frequency of seizures was dramatically dropped, and the severity, it was, it was a clinical success. But in careful experiments, they found that these people are very, very different from us. So in one experiment, you have a, a person, either a normal person or a split brain, looking at a screen, and you have them look at a little dot in the middle of the screen. And then while they're looking at that dot, you might flash up something like the phrase key ring, where key is to the left of the dot and ring is to the right. So you're looking at a dot, key ring appears for about a tenth of a second and disappears. And you ask the person, just you know, re tell me what you saw. And for any of us, it would be easy. A tenth of a second is a long time. So we'd just say key ring. 
But for the split brain patients, they would say, I saw the word ring. And you say, well, you know, what kind of ring? A wedding ring, doorbell ring, key ring, what kind of ring? They say, no, just a ring. And then you say, okay, well, I'm going to blindfold you, and I've got a little box with stuff in it. And I want you, with your left hand, to go through and pick out what it was that you read. So the left hand goes in and it goes through and it might pick up a ring and puts it down, might pick up a key ring, picks it, puts it down, keeps going until it picks up a key. And while the person is blindfolded, you say to them, what's in your left hand? And they'll go, I don't know. And you take the blindfold off and they look and they say, you're holding a key. Why? Why? You told me that you saw the word ring. Why are you holding a key in your left hand? I don't know. I mean, they literally, they don't know. And then if you blindfold them and have both hands in two boxes going after what they saw, the left hand works independently from the right. The left hand pulls out a key. The right hand pulls out a ring. If you ask the guy what's in your right hand, he can tell you, even when he's blindfolded. I should explain the neuroscience on this. It turns out that the left visual world, everything to the left of where you're looking, goes first to the right hemisphere. And the right visual world goes first to the left hemisphere. Now, normally... The information then goes across the corpus callosum, and both hemispheres find out. But when this corpus callosum is cut, that's not possible. And so with a tenth of a second, there's not enough time for you to do an eye movement so that you can look around and get the information to both hemispheres. So you've actually got only the word key being seen by the right hemisphere and the word ring being seen by the left hemisphere because the ring is on the right, goes to the left hemisphere. So you have... Two hemispheres with separate contents of consciousness. That's the key. And when you check these people a little bit further, you find out that the two hemispheres have different personalities. Typically, the left hemisphere tends to make up stories. It's uh, what Steven Pinker sometimes calls a baloney generator. We're baloney generators. That's right. That's right. We call it the universe. That's right. We're exactly right. Actually, the one, one example of this baloney generation in real time was Mike Gazzaniga uh, had a split-brain patient, and when he, in the middle of an experiment, he flashed the word walk to the left visual field, and it only went to the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere didn't know what was going on. The person got up and started walking because the patient was trying to cooperate, and then Gazzaniga pretended to be surprised, and he said, excuse me, we're in the middle of an experiment. Why did you just get up and walk out? And without missing a beat, the left hemisphere, which is the one that talks, only your left hemisphere talks, the, the person said, um, oh, I'm thirsty, I needed a drink. Well, that's false. I mean, the, the left hemisphere had no idea why it was, they were getting up to walk, but the real thing is it didn't know that it didn't know. It's so used to making up baloney that it was just doing it on the spot. <laughs> and so most of what we believe about ourselves is just baloney that we make up on the spot to make ourselves look rational and reasonable. <laughs> It's it's a good story. I want to take one last break from our conversation with Dr. Hoffman to talk to you again about LinkedIn. We've been discussing reality, tracing meaning and reality in our daily lives that are observable and objectively beneficial. There are mediums that show tangible improvements when exposed to external influences where reality and meaning can exist objectively. One of these mediums is running a business where hiring the right person for the role can have a dramatic impact on your business and its results. And to make sure you hire the right people, 
you should use LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by people with the skills, qualifications, and other interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn and why companies rated LinkedIn Jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. Use LinkedIn Jobs today and make mindfulness part of your hiring process. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash infinite. Again, that's linkedin.com slash infinite to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. We are here. This is the Rubin Museum. And most people here are not neuroscientists or mathematicians. Anybody here a neuroscientist or mathematician? Okay, I hardly see any. One or two hands are raised. We are here because we actually want to see what is the relationship between science and spirituality, if any. Science usually asks, how do things work? What's out there? Spirituality asks, who's asking the question? What or who is asking the question? And the non-dual traditions that come from the East, Vedanta and Buddhism, they say that only humans have existential suffering. You wouldn't have this conversation between alligators or dolphins or snakes. Humans have these conversations because humans have existential dilemmas. What is the meaning of death? Does God exist? Do I have a soul? What is the meaning and purpose of my existence? And the Vedanta addresses these, and so does Buddhism. They say, one, the first reason for human existential suffering, existential suffering, not you know, pain or disease or infirmity, is that we only see partial truth, only see partial truth, which is exactly what you're saying, number one. That's the first klesha, the first cause of human suffering. The second is we grasp and cling at experience which is ungraspable because as soon as you have a, you say you look there and you look there, that experience is over. By the time you hear my words, they actually don't exist anymore. So that's the second cause. The third, which automatically comes from that, is the fear of impermanence. The fourth is false identity. I think I'm the body-mind, and what you're saying is the body-mind itself is an icon or a symbol of a species-specific experience. And the fifth is the fear of death, which also comes from the false construct that the body-mind is the reality instead of being the symbolic expression of a species-specific mode of experience. I'm seeing here, from what you're saying, is that if we understood ourselves as conscious agents, and these conscious agents uh, are actually not in space-time, then there is no death. There is all the constructs we have about space, time, causality, birth, death, identity 
are false. This is very similar to what they teach you. Right. It, it is very, very similar. And I am working on a theory of reality. Start with the theory of consciousness and show how space-time and matter and neurons can be booted up from that. But if you look, there's no mathematical theory of consciousness out there. I mean, scientists do not have a, a math. They'll have a theory of like integrated information that they hope would lead to consciousness, but it's not a theory of consciousness, it's a theory of integrated information. What I and my colleagues have been doing is, for the last four or five years, we published a mathematical model of consciousness on its own terms. And we're using, the, the goal is to, and so you can get the paper if you want, it's, it's free online. And the idea is to start with consciousness and to boot up space and time and physical objects as icons, experiences within consciousness. And to give you a feeling for um, what I mean by conscious agents and being fundamental. Think of looking at yourself, your face in the mirror. What do you see? All you see directly is skin, hair, and eyes. But you know firsthand that what you don't see in the mirror, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your love of music, your headache, um, all the colors, sounds, and shapes that you're experiencing, none of that can be seen on your face. The face is covering up this infinite world of your conscious experiences. And when I look at a person, when I look at Deepak, I, I can only see a face, hair, skin, and eyes, but I believe that behind that simple symbol is the infinite realm of Deepak's conscious experiences and for every other person. So the idea of what I call conscious realism is, is that, that Space and time and physical objects are just an interface. An interface to what? A vast social network of interacting conscious agents. An infinite network, potentially infinite. That's one of the technical questions. Is it just growing without bound, or is it genuine? So there are if it's questions. not in space-time, then it's conceivably it's conceivably infinite. conceivably infinite. This turns on some deep issues in mathematics and intuitionist logic and so forth. So we're we're we're. It's, I'm not ruling out infinite. It may be infinite. If so, then there's all sort. There are an infinite number of infinities, as it turns out. And so, if you think about this, we're now doing a science that's really now treading on the turf of that's been traditionally spiritual. I mean, I'm saying let's talk about consciousness in its own terms. Perhaps infinite consciousnesses, but let's have mathematical precision. Let's make testable theories that lead to empirical consequences. May I summarize then what I think is your conclusion? And then you can say if it's true or not. Okay. So what Don Hoffman is saying is that the physical world, the physical body, irrespective of the magnitude of it, the universe, the Milky Way galaxy, other universes, that's not real. Even the physical body is not real. What is real is the consciousness in which this is conceived, constructed, and comes into existence. And that consciousness ultimately is fundamental reality that conceives, constructs, governs, and becomes what we call the physical universe, including our physical bodies. Would that be a fair summary? Uh, absolutely. And I would just make one point of clarification because the word real can be used in two different senses. And so just to clarify, 
most of us use the word real to mean that something is real if it would exist even if no creature perceived it. So when Einstein said the moon is real, that it, he was really saying explicitly that the moon would be there even if no one was looking. Even if there had been no creatures ever to look, the moon would still be there. So that's one notion of reality. Now I'll call that objective reality, that it would exist even if there were no creature to perceive it. And then there's another notion of reality, which is like if you have a really bad headache. Well, if you have a really bad headache, that would not exist if you weren't here, right? That's your headache. So it doesn't satisfy the subjective reality criterion because the headache would not exist if there were not a creature, namely you, to perceive it. But if I told you that your headache wasn't real, you might be very cross with me and, and, you know, and say that's, that's not fair. So there's a different sense of real in which we talk about experiences being real as experiences. And so I want to say that, that experiences are real in that sense, but that space and time and physical objects are not real in the objective sense. We've assumed that this table would exist even if no creature were around to perceive it, and I'm saying that that's false. So who or what is the observer? Who or what is doing the perceiving? When I look at the brain, is my brain trying to understand the brain? Right. Or am I the observer of the brain itself? And where is this observer? Very, very good. So I'm committed to saying that the brain itself has no causal powers. The brain does nothing. So strictly speaking, I don't have a brain. <laughs> and after this conversation, you might agree. Uh, <laughs> All of you are probably familiar with the word Maya. How many people have heard the word Maya? Okay, so the Maya in Sanskrit uh, usually translated as illusion. But if you look at the etymology of Maya, it's the same word as meter, matter, music, myth, time, measurement. It's the same word. So Maya is the measurement of the inconceivable as this finite experience that we're having. And so very consistent with what very, you've said very so Very much far. so, very much so. I think we're running out of time, even though it doesn't exist. <laughs> thank you for joining me as we explored metahuman principles. And thank you to the Rubin Museum for hosting this great conversation. Infinite Potential will be back soon with more great guests and stories about our world. In the meantime, you can listen to our companion podcast, Daily Breath, where we have been going even further on what it means to shift from human to metahuman with daily meditations every day of the week. If you enjoyed today's episode, please find us on Apple Podcasts to rate and review the show. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Until next time. Now it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by Katie Shepard, Jan Cohen, and David Shadrach-Smith, and edited by Andy Jaskiewicz. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer, and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests, sponsors, interns, and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential 
to you. Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach-Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential.